Well, let me just echo what Brad said a few minutes ago. Um, I know this can be complicated. I don't know the whole story, but uh, call your dad. Call your dad. Uh, love on your dad. Um, my dad's been uh, dead for 23 years. Uh, for a time there, I thought about him every day. Now there's not a week that goes by I don't think about him. And he wasn't a perfect dad. Boy, I can tell you stories. Take me out for coffee and I'll tell you stories. It'll raise the hair on your head. And, uh, but he was my dad. And God gave that dad to me. He's the only dad I got. And so uh, I would give anything in the world to have one more conversation with him. I'd give anything in the world to hear him say, uh, he called me Lee Zibo, Lee Jr. And as I've said before, from up here, where he would hug me and kiss me, uh, anything. Call your dad. Well, welcome back to our series on Joseph, trusting God's goodness in our suffering. Two weeks ago, Noah walked us through Joseph's journey from um, the prison to the palace. And he pointed out that God didn't waste any of the hard seasons in Joseph's life. And in turn, Joseph gave God all the glory, all the recognition, and then he stewarded all that God had given him for kingdom purposes. This morning, after 20 years, we are heading, we're heading um, back towards an awkward yet very necessary family reunion. And but before we get there, let me let me just make a statement that's true for many of our, our families of origin. And I want you to see it behind me. Some some things are never mentioned. But they're never forgotten either. Anyone have a family of origin like that? Just the unspoken, right? Time goes by, but the reality is stuff happens whether we like it or not. In 20 years, you can get married and start a family. In 20 years, you can just move on with your life. In 20 years, you can start a career. In 20 years, you can become wealthy or you can become poor. Here's one thing that you can't do in 20 years. You can't erase a guilty conscience. You know, the conscience is an odd thing. It's the moral barometer of the heart. It's, it's the thing that causes us to sense what we've done wrong. Everyone has one. It's not a matter of religion or education or geography or ethnic origin. If you're a member of the human race, you were born with a conscience as part of God's original design. You, you get a conscience by virtue of being born on planet Earth. Romans chapter 2 says this, God has written his laws on every single one of our hearts. Now, in most cases, conscience is a good gift because our conscience can keep us out of trouble. But it's not infallible. It's not the same as Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have the power to compel our behavior. Conscience is like a street light that flashes green and yellow and red. And, and you can still run the red light if you wish, but you, you know you've done something wrong. I love this quote by Mark Twain. Maybe you've heard it. It's a great quote. He says, a clear conscience is the sure sign of a bad memory. <laughs> and he's right about that. If we suppress our, our conscience, um, what once seemed wrong doesn't seem so bad. What once kept us awake at night doesn't bother us anymore. What once made our cheeks blush with, with shame hardly enters our, our minds. Perhaps the, the brothers of Joseph thought that the passage of 20 years would remove their, their guilt. After all, 
They hadn't seen their brother or heard from them since that fateful day when they, they tossed him in a pit, dragged him out again, sold him to the Midianites, watched him as he was dragged off in chains, taken in the direction of Egypt. They certainly assumed he was dead. Why not? I mean, slaves didn't have a, a very long shelf life. To their father, they spoke of Joseph only in the past tense. That was part of the cover-up. By the way, what an amazing cover-up, right? Ten guys have held the secret for 20-plus years. That's almost impossible. To each other, they hardly spoke of it at all. Dead is dead, and that's all there is to it. But Joseph wasn't dead, far from it. You see, down in Egypt, hundreds of miles away, through a sequence of events so fantastic that no one could have dreamed it up except God, Joseph had risen to become prime minister in the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. He was the second most powerful man in the world. Are you kidding me? That's crazy. And yet the brothers have no clue, but they're about to find out. And through it all, God will awaken their guilty conscience to what they had done 20 years earlier. As we move into Genesis chapter 42, the long-awaited reunion between Joseph and his brothers will finally take place. And in this chapter, and the ones to come, we're going to see God bring these men to faith. And if we're honest, if we think about the life of Joseph, um, we don't think much about the 10 brothers, do we? except for how bad they are. Like, we kind of canceled them, right? Joseph good. Joseph rescued. Joseph flourishing. Ten brothers bad. I want you to hear this. We tend to forget that as much as God is pursuing Joseph, he's also pursuing the brothers. Here's the irony. I want you to see it behind me. Although Joseph had been enslaved and imprisoned, he's actually experienced freedom. And even though the brothers have been free for the last 20 years, they've been enslaved in a prison of their own minds. Let me ask you a question. Do you have some Joseph brothers in your life? Do you have some villains in your life? You've canceled them. You're like, man, I, abuse, anger, bad boss, addicted parents, horrible friend, former spouse. Do you have some villains in your life? You're like, God, I've canceled them. I'm done with them. And yet, as Spurgeon says, the hound of heaven, God is pursuing them as much as he's rescued you. I know, we live in a cancel culture. We get triggered easily. Time and time again, people will come into my office, believers, and they're canceling people. I'm like, man, what would Jesus do? You know what they say to me? You know what the number one response is? Someone say it if you think you know it. I say, what would Jesus do? I'm not Jesus. Boy, that's the gospel. I'm not Jesus. John 3, 16. I'm not Jesus. Go to hell. You're like, Joseph, all right. Brothers, really bad dudes. I kind of hope they rot in hell. 
this morning, we get to see God begin the process of bringing the brothers to repentance and ultimately freedom. We're going to see what it took for these men to truly become children of God. And as we do, um, we'll be able to see the process that God uses to awaken all those who are spiritually lost. Do me a favor. If you have not already, please open your Bibles and Bible apps to Genesis chapter 42 as we look at our text this morning, I'm going to break it down into, because the text does, three scenes, three acts, three scenes. Scene number one, we're going to see God get their attention. As we see the brothers at home with Papa Jacob, they're in Jacob's home in scene number one. Um, the predicted abundance and famine that, that Joseph talked about at the end of chapter 41 um, it happens. Now, it wasn't confined to Egypt. It was world, if not, it was area, if not worldwide. Jacob and his family are in Canaan, which is north of Egypt, and they're facing the same problems. And, and for a while, I, I imagine, because it's a wealthy family, they're able to live on what they have in reserve, but the weather isn't changing, and the supplies um, are depleted, and they come to a point of Desperation. Let me hey, write this down. Sometime in my life, I will come to a, a point of desperation. Maybe you're in it right now. So we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 42 and verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, isn't this a typical father thing? Why do you keep looking at each other? The problem with that is they're not 12. They're like 60. Like, there's a major problem. Um, we're about to starve to death, and you guys are looking at each other like, what do we do? Well, Jacob hatches a plan. He continued, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and, and buy some for us. They've got money. Um, remember, this, this is really important. Um, by and large, not everybody, which makes me really sad, but by and large, everybody in this room and those watching online, we have safety nets, don't we? Like um, the McCartys, they live close to me. If I run out of food, I'm going to be begging for food at the McCartys, and they better give it to me, right? <laughs> There's no safety nets in this culture. We tend to, well, they just can drive through, you know, the, the fast food falafel. No, no, not there. Well, some, no, this is no safety nets. When the food is gone, when the water is gone, you die. That's how it works. So he continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us so we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's um, brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was a famine in the land of Canaan also. So Jacob sent all of his sons off to Egypt, all except his youngest, Benjamin, the one remaining child of his long-deceased and most favorite wife, Rachel. Um, Jacob kept him at home. And remember, Jacob thought Joseph was dead, and Joseph's brothers knew nothing of his whereabouts. Who cares? Out of sight, out of mind, best describes their, their attitude. Now, mind you, the, the sons of, of Jacob had become middle-aged men with families of their own. 
They probably never mentioned the deed of violence to each other. They did their best to banish the thought from their minds, sometimes in their dreams. They may have caught a glimpse of the agony and distress that was on, on Joseph's face and in his voice. But by and large, they sought to drown such painful memories uh, in the river of forgetfulness. Conscience slept. So it's important that we see what God is doing here. For, For years, the brothers were living life without having to think about God. Life went on as normal. They got up, they went to work, they came home. Next day, started all over again. They were content in their routine. Their needs were met. Life went on as it always had. But with this famine, God gets their attention. Life as it always is is not enough. Do me a favor. Write this down. I want you to see this. It's really important. It's easy to avoid God when we feel self-sufficient. It's easy to feel that you have no need of God's touch when everything is running smoothly. These men became comfortable in their denial and their deceptions as long as status quo remained, some things would never change. So God provokes a crisis or allows a crisis. Now this crisis can either harden their hearts further or it can wake them up. And this is often the way that God works. As we look, especially throughout the Old Testament, we see passages like this. In the book of Amos, God tells the Israelites, Amos chapter four and verse six, I I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in in every town. Why? Because you wouldn't return to me. You, You left me declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Why? Because you haven't returned to me. Like God doesn't, yeah, he does that. Does he do it all the time? No, but he does that. God could have simply washed his hands of these folks. He could have said, fine, forget it. But that's not what what he did with the Israelites, and that's not what he does with you, you and me. God loves us too much to let us go without a fight. God is a jealous lover. That's the language scriptures use. God hates it when we make idols of other things. God runs after us. He seeks us. He pursues us. So at times, not always, he exercises tough love. He brings or or allows a crisis in our lives that that forces us to address ultimate issues. It may be, here's some ultimate issues right here, uh, an unexpected diagnosis. It may be a financial emergency. Marriage struggles. Parenting struggles. A family crisis. A crisis of faith. Now, he may not be upset at us, and those things just happen. We live in a sin-cursed world. But at times, when we stray from him, uh, as disobedient children, God starts to pull us back. And you'd be surprised what he might use. I know it can be painful, but often in these situations, God is seeking to awaken us out of spiritual lethargy. So here's some questions that we need to ask. Um, are we going through tough times? Is life um, a struggle right now? Could it be that God is trying to get 
our attention? Could it be that he's trying to awaken us out of our spiritual slumber? I want to say something. I want to say it twice. I should have put it on the screen. I, I didn't. Um, is it possible that God is trying to move us from a place of profession to a place of possession? I'll say it again. Is it possible that God is trying to move us from a profession of faith to a possession of faith? Like, I'm reminded, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and what? Do not the things that I tell you to do. John 15, Jesus says, you can do nothing unless you what? Remain, abide in me. We, we just sang the song, right? Did you sing it? I, I need you, Lord. I need you. Oh, how I, I need you. Profession is, man, I prayed the prayer. I did that 20 years. Who cares? Possession is, I can't live without you. Like Moses said in the desert, wherever you go, I've got to go. We've raised a generation of profession. Hey, man, just get into heaven. Live your life. Pray the prayer. Possession is, whew, I can't do anything apart from you, Jesus. I can't do anything apart from you. And, and, and guess what? He desires desperation, independence, desperation, independence all the time. We tend to, in our American culture, it's like, who, I'm tired of being desperate for God. God's like, no, I'm not tired of that. Woo, thank you, God. I, I've been kind of dependent on you when times were tough. I'll take it from here. The economy's good. Is it possible that God loves us so much and, and that he wants us to be his with such intensity that he'll stop at nothing to turn our hearts towards him? Scene one. God, God wants to get the brother's uh, attention. Hey, maybe he wants to get your attention. Scene two, um, the problem is now confronted. Now it really starts to get dramatic. We see the brothers before Joseph. Joseph and his brothers haven't seen each other for 20 plus years. Joseph was 17 when he was sold in slavery. Um, 30 when he was brought before Pharaoh. And then there were seven years of abundance, and it probably would have taken a year of two or two um, for them to use up all the reserves that the family may have had. So during this time, Joseph and his brothers had certainly gotten older. Um, they had lost some, some hair, gained some weight. They had dad bods. They were gray. Um, the older brothers were probably starting to show some, some signs of wear of life. Can you imagine the scene? Joseph, wearied by the stream of people in need, he looks up and he sees his brothers. He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And, and why would they? Let me ask you a question. Anyone been to a class reunion and you saw people and you're like, I have no idea who you are. Raise your hand. Okay. I've never done the class reunion. Um, I'm afraid my past will catch up. That's a whole other thing. But I, I did do two weeks ago. It was pure joy. Um, the, the, the youth ministry, with the, I was youth pastor 30 years ago, had a reunion. And uh, I'm like, no one's going to show up. Oh, 100 plus people showed up. 
And I get there, and I'm, I'm recognizing a lot of people. But this one guy comes up to me. I, I can see he's eyeing me from across the room. I'm like, who is this guy? Must be the husband of a girl who was in my youth. He comes up and he goes, hey, he goes, Pastor Lee, I want to tell you something. You changed my life. I said, hmm, okay. <laughs> you, cha- you changed my life. He starts to tear up. He says, um, I'm, they're all, all my students are now in their 40s. That's hard to believe because I'm only 41. But uh, so the, he says, you changed my life. I've been in Dallas for many years. For the last two years, I've been teaching seventh and eighth grade boys in Sunday school. All the things you taught me, all the things you did, I do it with them. Thank you. Like high five. I'm like, all right. He walks away. I turn and look at Ruth. I said, who was that guy? <laughs> who was that guy? The last time the brother saw Joseph, he was covered with mud from being thrown in the pit. He was wearing tattered clothing. He had ripped off his special coat, and he was in a position of weakness, begging in anguish for his life. Now he's dressed up in royal attire. He's clean-shaven, confident, and powerful, and he's speaking Egyptian. This is the last place they would have expected to find Joseph. Let's pick up the story. Verse 6, Genesis 42. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Does that sound familiar? Hmm. Hmm. Not quite as dramatic yet. Wait, wait for the next couple of weeks. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Though, Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them, and he said to them, How do you like me now? No, he didn't say that. <laughs> that would be me. What a dog! <laughs> Number two in the world. <laughs> That's why Joseph is um, an Old Testament Jesus, and I'm not. So, no, I didn't say that. He said, you are spies. You have come to see how our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, Hmm. not spies. Uh, No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. The brothers argue that they're not spies. They're just brothers who have come um, to get bread for the family. Joseph pretends not to believe them, verse 13, but they replied, uh, your servants, we, we're 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. I always, I always find this last sentence is, I don't know, powerful and painful, and the youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. It's like being at your own funeral, isn't it? One is no more. Now, why would they say all these things? Well, first of all, they're just trying to be honest. Let's give them that. They're, they are. They're trying to be honest. Second, they're, they're pleading that it's absurd to think that they're spies. They're like, wait a second. What spy would travel with his brothers in a group of 10? That the Spies blend in, right? They're inconspicuous. Joseph remains calm. Why? I believe it's because he's not after revenge. But he does want to know if his brothers have really changed. Um, You can forgive somebody without having to completely buy into how they hurt you in the first place. Right? You can forgive somebody who you lent money to and they never paid you back. 
but you don't have to lend it to them again, right? You can forgive somebody who's really, really hurt you emotionally um, and keep a little distance and observe and watch. I, I would highly recommend it, but you need to forgive. You need to forgive. He wants to know if his brothers have really changed. He's also concerned for his brother Benjamin and for his father. If they treated him bad, what did they do to Benjamin? Now, he's now the favorite. Besides, I, I think Joseph, who had lived his entire life listening to God, as Jim said, cultivating his heart with God, he realized that this is an opportunity to reach his brothers. So Joseph proposes a test. One of the men is to be selected to go home and return with uh, Benjamin before the others will be set free. So Joseph throws all of them in prison for three days. Silly, what's, what's going on here? Why? Um, Pastor Alistair Begg um, helps us to understand what is happening concerning our passage. I think this is really good. I want you to see it on the screen behind me. He says this, do you recall what three things had annoyed the brothers about Joseph? There were his special coat and his dream, but he also had brought a bad report about the men to the father, to their father. In other words, the brothers had seen Joseph as Jacob's spy sent to get information and then run back to daddy with it. So Joseph decided to accuse his brothers of the very same thing they had held against him. Back in Dothan, Joseph had protested his innocence but had been treated with harsh words, imprisonment in a pit, and finally deportation to Egypt as a slave. Now the brothers were protesting their innocence, and Joseph responded with harsh words and imprisonment. Do you see the parallels there? Pretty powerful. Joseph is subjecting his brothers to the same charges and a taste of the same experience that he had endured. Now he's not doing this for punishment. He's doing this in, in, in the hope that his brothers will wake up to the nature of their actions. He's hoping this treatment will make them come clean. Joseph wasn't being cruel. God was using the, the, these events to awaken the conscience of his brothers. He was stripping a, a, away the pretense to expose the horror within. Please hear this. A person cannot be saved until they realize that they're lost. Let me say it again. You can't be saved until you realized that you're lost. The brothers needed to see, to feel, to understand their own sinfulness. They needed to sit in it a while. Scene number one, God gets their attention with a famine. Scene number two, God confronts them with the problem. These are all steps for repentance. Lastly, we see scene number three, the realization of sin. We see the brothers talk amongst themselves. The third scene of the story follows three days in a prison. These um, three days, they, in those three days, they thought about their situation. They had time to sit and kind of soak and experience the same horror that they had inflicted on Joseph on a micro level, not a macro level. And now um, they've been brought before Joseph again. The brothers are given a reprieve of sorts. Instead of one brother going home and the other staying, one brother will stay. It'll be Simeon and everyone else gets to go home. But Joseph knows that they'll return. Joseph wants to see if the brothers are willing to desert one of their own again like they deserted him. Will they abandon Simeon as they did Joseph? What's most interesting about this scene is the conversation that takes place between the brothers. They thought it was a private conversation. 
As Joseph sat there, he had an interpreter, an interpreter and so they thought, this, this guy doesn't understand Hebrew. Verse 21, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Verse 22, you got to love Reuben. Reuben replies, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Like he's throwing everyone under the bus. There's always one of those guys, right? I told you we shouldn't have done that. Well, then why'd you do it? Well, I, I don't know, but I, you know. now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Verse 24, he turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Uh, in the original language, the we, and that's why I underlined it, the we in their conversation is emphatic. It denotes ownership. It's really important. Grammar matters. Language matters. We are guilty. We saw the distress of his soul. We would not listen. Do me a favor. Write this down. The first step toward activating a seared conscience is taking responsibility for one's own personal guilt. How are we doing as a culture right now with that? Oh, my word. I don't care what political party. No one ever does anything wrong. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. The first step toward activating a seared conscience is taking responsibility for one's own personal guilt. Now, get this. If you don't take responsibility, you won't activate it. And you'll stay right where you're at. That's why you go to any 12-step program, right? You can't go to a 12-step program as an alcoholic and go, hey, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> they just dragged me in here. I don't got a problem. I'm good. Okay, out. Out. Here's what's really important to know. This is, this is really important to know. The brothers didn't blame their father for being passive. They didn't blame their brother Joseph for being proud or arrogant or favored. They didn't diminish the wrong that they had did by saying, that's 20 years, we were young. I was just a kid. You know how many times I hear that with people in their marriages? I got married when I was young. How old were you, 29? What? I got married when I was young. I, you know, what does that have to do with anything? Let's work on the marriage. We're always looking for a way out. Does it remind you of anything? Maybe the, the garden? Well, was it? It was the woman you gave me, God. Well, no, no, no. It was the snake. Here's what's important. They used the right pronoun when they agreed together. We are responsible. There was no one else we can blame. Notice also they talked about a, a transfer of distress. Really important. 
Let's go back to verse 21. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how, how distressed he was when he pleaded for his, uh, with us for his life, but we would not listen. Here's the transfer. That's why his distress came on us. The original Hebrew root of distress means to bind, to restrict, to tie up. Now, not, not the kind of binding used to tie up Simeon, but theirs was an emotional binding. When we have done wrong to someone, this is so important, so important, and we haven't gone through the necessary process to make things right with them or with God, when we haven't fully dealt with our sin, we become the victim of the very distress we put that person through. We feel the same distress that we caused him, that we saw in his face. That's, that distress gets transferred to us. Do you remember? I don't know if anyone reads anymore. I love to read. Do you remember Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Telltale Heart? Who remembers that? All right, okay. Yeah, people are lying, but that's all right. We'll go with that. Um, I read it in English Lit a zillion years ago. In it, the murderer couldn't sleep because he kept hearing the beating heart of his victim down in the basement. Actually, a really scary book. But he wasn't hearing the victim's heart. Plot twist. Um, he was hearing his own heart. Pounding pounding in his chest, reverberating uh, throughout his skull. His own guilt awoke him, and finally it led him to the revelation that, guess what? He was the murderer. The brother's crime was now more than two decades old, but they still felt the distress of it. Time doesn't erase distress. We have evidence uh, of that in our own lives. We know from experience the inescapable reminders of our, of our guilt. And that guilt has, if we don't deal with it, it has not only emotional and spiritual side effects, it has physical side effects. I could show you study after study after study where people who suppress that guilt, who suppress things they've done to others and don't deal with it, it comes out with physical distress. I'm, I'm reminded of David, right? following his adultery with Bathsheba and his murderous plot to kill Uriah and cover it all up. Uh, remember his confession, Psalm 32, verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. The late Eugene Peterson puts it this way in the message. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life ran dry. It's dried up. Have you been there? St. Anne of Austria, 16th century saint. I don't know a lot about her, but this is an all-time great quote. God does not pay at the end of every day, but at the end he pays. He pays. The long outstanding bills were come and due for Joseph's brothers, and as their debt rose ever higher before their eyes, they openly admitted, we're guilty. We're guilty. And verse 24 gives us Joseph's response. It says this, he turned away from them and began to weep, stronger in the original, just bawl, just like awkward crying, like, what the heck? 
This seems odd. Why did Joseph weep? Here's why. Because he saw that they were repentant. He was moved by their repentance. He didn't cry when he first saw them. He didn't cry when he spoke harshly to them. But he cried when they acknowledged their sin. In this, we can see a shadow of God. We can see God's tenderness and mercy towards sinners who repent. We see Jesus in Joseph in this moment. Jesus said in Luke 15, verse 10, that there is joy in the presence of God angels over one sinner who repents. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that God wants everybody, everyone to come to repentance. Repentance pleases God and it touches the heart of God. As we finish this morning, let me, let me just ask you this. Is there anyone in here or online that needs to repent? You're like, oh man, we, is this, we just got fundamental independent Baptist right here, right? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but for years, maybe it's months, weeks, days, but probably for some it's years, you've been trying to ignore your conscience and Holy Spirit is pushing you to come clean. By the way, not for him, but for you. Repentance isn't for God. It's for us. He wants his children to, to live in, in freedom, not in bondage to unconfessed sin. You, you can deal with that in your seat. You hear me say this often. Um, your seat can be an altar, or you can come to the altar. Here in just a minute, the prayer team is going to be all around this room. And you can come and just confess. James says, confess your sins one to another. Or you can do it right there and just say, God, I, there's some things I got to deal with. Let's stop giving the devil a stronghold in our life and let's come, come clean today. Remember what the devil loves. He loves hiddenness. He loves darkness. He loves quiet. Don't say a thing. Be like Joseph's brothers. Just let it, just stuff it in the closet. And God is like, bring it out. There's no sin that's too big for me. Let's, come, let's deal with it. Come on. The devil's like, nope, if they, if they knew. And let me just say this. Sometimes you confess things and people around you don't know what to do with it. And I'm sorry for that. But God does. But God does. Maybe you're here this morning and your guilt and shame is weighing you down, but you're not a follower of Jesus. So this repentance thing, man, that seems strange to you. I get it. You're like, what is repentance? Here's the short answer. Repentance is God's grace. Repentance is God graciously allowing us to turn from our sin and turn to him. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that the kindness of God, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Get this, you will find when you ask for forgiveness that God is quick to forgive. He's quick to bless and he's quick 
to restore. Think about what happened with Joseph's brothers. Even before they were reconciled, even before Joseph could even say, I forgive you, the moment his brothers said, we're wrong, he turned around and he wept. He filled their sacks with grain. He gave them back their silver. He gave them provisions for back home. He lavished grace on them. Likewise, when we turn to God, he quickly pours out his grace. Now this begs the question, do we deserve this grace? Absolutely not. Can we earn it? First inclination is how much does it cost? No. Can we ever repay what we ask to receive? Nope. But when we confess, repent, and ask, God forgives, heals, and makes new. The Bible calls that grace. Do me a favor, just bow your heads real quickly. Maybe you're here this morning and you know and love Jesus. I think that's most people in this room. But you bought into the enemy's lies that you need to stuff it. You need to hold on to that hidden sin and not deal with it. And I'm, I'm just going to encourage you, come clean today. Come clean. Maybe it's just you and God in that space, in your chair, in that altar. Praise God. Maybe you need to go talk to somebody. Um, it is hard for God to use us when we hold on to unconfessed sin. It just is. And it's just no fun. It's not the abundant life. It's just no fun. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I, I, I'm not a believer. I think it just dawned on me that uh, I've been professing faith, but I've never possessed my faith. I've never truly repented of my sins and given it all to Jesus as Lord, as Savior and Lord. Do it right now. Make today the day of salvation. We're going to take communion and literally, when I step out, you can go right now, but when I step off this, this stage, I'm going to encourage you to take communion. I want to encourage you. Well, I want the prayer team to come up right now. I'm going to encourage you to, to pray with people. Um, this is our ministry time. Just do business with God. This is an incredibly safe space. Take politics out of it. Take your, your past out of it. Take cultural stuff that's messed with you concerning the church and just go to Jesus. Father, thank you for repentance. Thank, thank you that your kindness leads us to that place of turning from our sin. I pray that happens today. For those who know and love you, I pray for, as David prayed, um, for a spirit of renewal. Bring them back to the joy of their salvation, God. In process, save marriages. Save family dynamics. Return um, children back to their parents and parents back to their children, God. And Father God, for those who don't know you, um, I can't save anybody. No one can but you. We pray that today people would give their life to you, Jesus. We confess you as Savior and Lord. Return from their sins and turn to you as Savior. Amen.